This morning, uh, let me quickly start by saying that I have loved uh, studying the Psalms. Uh, before they were songs, they were poetry. Uh, and to look at the Psalms in a very poetic way, and hopefully we will uh, bring out the sort of poetic devices in them to see exactly what the Psalmist is saying. Uh, but they are beautiful when we see them for what they are. Um, whilst prepping the Psalm and this sermon, I didn't prep the Psalm, sorry, that was David. Uh, whilst prepping the sermon, uh, I've also been watching uh, Friends at the same time because many of my friends are amazed that I've never seen it. Uh, and there is an episode in Friends, and it's where uh, it's the Thanksgiving one. And uh, Rachel is uh, making the dessert, and the recipe book is stuck together uh, two pages. And so she starts making the first bit, and the first bit has uh, like custard and cream. And then she flips over the page, and she continues with shepherd's pie. And so we have this mix of a dessert uh, where the two should be separated, but they are stuck together. Uh, the reason I say this is, uh, as we have introduction into this psalm's introduction. Uh, psalm 56, it has above it this uh, superscript. Uh, for the choir director, according to Jonath Elam Rehoikim, which means something like above the dove of silence or upon the dove of the far-off orcs or terebinths. Uh, we're not fully sure what it means. Uh, but if you remember the psalm from last week, then your mind should jump back to, ah, dove. <laughs> Was that not verse 6? About, oh, if I had wings like a dove, then I could fly away. Um, and maybe it might then make you think, well, maybe this should be with Psalm 55. Uh, and I would agree with you on that. Um, so you can take two positions, and I will leave it up to you. Either this means that Psalm 56 is meant to be sung to the tune of Psalm 55, the one which mentions the dove, or Psalm 55 is called the tune of the dove, and it ends that way. And to support this, if we were to look at the uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, and if we can uh, have it up, thank you, you'll see that the top line, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet of on Shigionoth, <laughs> um, this is all this um, literary information, Yes? Our issue is that the earliest manuscripts of the Psalms, it's all one block text and there is no paragraph breaks, there's no breaks between the Psalms and so where do you split it? And historically what we've done is we've just split it the second where we see uh, to the choir director. Uh, but we thought that was the start of a Psalm. Whereas actually when we come to Habakkuk 3, we see that the choir director bit comes at the end of the Psalm. It marks it off. And so when we come to Psalms 56 and we see for the choir director uh, upon the dove of silence uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 would say that this uh, the form of a psalm it ends with that and so actually the to the choir director the bit that comes with psalm 56 is what you will see at the start of psalm 57 for the choir director al tasheth it means do not destroy and this fits a lot better because uh, Psalm 57 has the same thing, do not destroy. And both Psalms start with a, a sort of plea of God not to destroy. It starts with a, have mercy on me or be gracious to me. Uh, let me make one last note on a sort of literary front um, with the term a miktam of David. Uh, a miktam of David. Miktam, again, we are slightly unsure what it means. And lots of people have almost had... Uh, Lovely conspiracy theories about what it means. Uh, but 
Miktam, uh, there is another Hebrew word called miktab, and it means writing. And so the most plausible understanding is that miktam is uh, a variation on the word writing, and it means inscription. But a miktam, it carries this sort of understanding of uh, something that is important, something that's very private. This is a private prayer of David, and we're having a real insight into this. It is his prayer where he is saying, do not destroy your God. Because he thinks death is on his door. Well, let me quickly pray and then we will uh, properly stop uh, looking into our psalm today. Uh, Father, we come to you and we are so thankful that we have your word. Uh, your word which is a, a lamp unto our feet. And Father, we pray that this morning, if there are any people in this room who are outside of your kingdom, who have not turned to you as their saviour, then this morning they would do that. They would see what a great light that you are. And Father, to all of us who are saved, let your word encourage us this morning. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would guide us through the passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me uh, read through the psalm for you uh, this morning, uh, and I'll be reading from what's called the Legacy Standard Bible, and the reason for it is it puts the name of God, Yahweh, back into it, which I love when we're going through the psalms. It keeps it nice and personal. A miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk. They watch my heels as they have hoped to take my life. On account of their wickedness, will they have an escape? In anger, bring down the peoples, O oh God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In Yahweh, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O oh God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. David starts his psalm with, be gracious to me, O God, and to understand why he really needs God to show him grace, that uh, unmerited favor, or for God to show him that mercy. We need the, the context, and so we get that from the, uh, the historical data when the Philistines seized him in Gath, and we we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 to 15, and I will read that for you. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. 
give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall, shall this fellow come into my house? And then after this, David then departs. David is, at the minute, he's got Saul and his army running after him. And David thinks, where better to hide? But with the enemies of Israel, they'll never find me there. So I'll, I'll go and I'll hide amongst the Philistines. We see straight away the desperation of David. Because if you do not want to be recognized, you can put up a hood. But if you walk into the city of the Philistines with the sword of Goliath, <laughs> their champion, you will straight away be recognized. If you remember the description of Goliath, big man, tall man, probably a fat man, <laughs> and all of his weapons were so heavy and big, his sword would have been very obvious to any Philistine who saw it. And so David is not foolish in this sense, but David is so desperate that he will take his chance amongst the Philistines, rather amongst the Philistines than, than Saul and his army. But when he gets there, then the people recognize him straight away. And when he is recognized, he takes it to heart and he's scared of the king. He realizes that before there was an army coming after him and, and now there is basically the whole Philistine army in front of him. And he is cornered. And the only thing that David can do is, is cry out, be gracious to me, O God. Or have mercy on me, O God. Just note that when we say have mercy, we really mean have mercy. Uh, God is God. And we rebelled against him. And he does not have to show mercy to anyone. That is the essence of mercy. That when he shows us mercy, it is out of his generosity and his compassion. And when we are afflicted and in distress, God is under no obligation to deliver us. But knowing that he is a compassionate God, we can fully come before his throne and say, God, have mercy on me. Be gracious to me. And David, he has all the reason to need God on his side. We, we see in verses 1 and 2, Oh God, for man has trampled upon me, all day long an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For many attack me proudly. Uh, in Hebrew, we call this alternate parallelism. It means the lines are parallel to one another. And, and David keeps switching. And it's to stress. This is never ceasing. I get away from the army of Saul. And the second I'm away from them, there is a new distress in town. It's the Philistines because they've recognized me. 
And, and in the Hebrew here, we have the, rep, the, the alternation. They trample on me, they oppress me, they trample on me, and they attack me. David is getting beaten into the ground, and he is stuck down there. And you see as well the repetition of the all day long, an attacker oppresses me. And all day long, they have trampled on me. Which means David all day long is down in the dumps. And we feel like that so often. But when we feel like that so often, our eyes are fixed on the circumstances and not on God. We are not crying out to God for his mercy and his grace. Where it says, for many attack me proudly, it can also be uh, literally interpreted on high. And we'll come back to that because David plays with this word. But then uh, David moves on. He moves on from the mercy that he needs and he moves on to, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can me a man do to me? Do you see the, the movement in the psalm? It starts when, when I am afraid, to at the end of this bit, I shall not be afraid. And it has the repetition, I will trust in you, and in God I trust. Again, this is another beautiful Hebrew poetic device of what we call a chiasm, but it means that the lines are sort of the pushing in, and we get the central line of David. What is David's focus here? And it's the middle line, in God whose word I praise. The movement from him being afraid to I shall not be afraid is rooted right in that central line of in God whose word I praise. It is the word of God that brings hope to David. For David, he's in distress. And he knows if he looks just on the Philistines or on Saul and his army coming, it will cripple him with fear. But when he lifts his eyes to God, there is liberation there is hope and there is freedom. You can be stuck in the darkness and if all you do is dwell on the darkness, you will never see the light of God. And so I ask you this morning, have you seen the light of God? Have you seen his salvation? For it is there for us in the word. At this point, David would probably have only had uh, the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible and Joshua and Judges. But he finds comfort in that alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 31, it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God is merciful. And he doesn't forget his covenant with you. That is his commitment in a relationship with you. When you are in the dark uh, and you are in despair, you can trust in him. Because his word tells us that he will have compassion upon us. Or Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. But it's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And it can mean this by the word. It could also mean that David is looking on the promises of God. God promised him, you will have the kingdom. It's a bit like um, Abraham with, with Isaac. He knows he can offer up Isaac because God said from Isaac will come a great nation. And he knows if, if he has to sacrifice Isaac, God will raise Isaac up. And he, David in his despair, he knows God is faithful to his covenant and to his promises. 
so that when God says you will have the kingdom, it will be given to you from Saul, he knows in his despair the kingdom's still coming. And so the word is so important to us. It does not promise us prosperity, but it does promise us sufficiency, that God will always be there and he will always provide in our need. Also, the word is so important for David's movement and he was, when I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. What can me a man do to me? And this is the rhetorical question. What can me a man do to me? The answer is no, nothing. <laughs> he can't do anything. Now we see that David's about a list for us, what man can do. <laughs> but here the, the word man, literally it's flesh and it's always meant in a way of weakness. If you ever need to be reminded that God is God and man is but man. And the book of Isaiah is for you. If we were to uh, quickly look at Isaiah, and I'll, I'll turn, don't we? Isaiah 31, verses 1 and 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. God is God and God is spirit. And man is but mere flesh. He can't do anything against God. Or what about Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8? All flesh is grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And finally, Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 13. This is the Lord speaking. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten Yahweh your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. The word is so important for us in times of distress. These are the words that people in Afghanistan really need to hear today. Because Man is, and, and we saw it, they're attacking and they're trampling and they are proud or on high. Kingdoms will come and go, they will fall. There will always be a new power player in town, but no one will ever be more powerful than God. And so when we are in despair and need deliverance, we do not turn to man. You can just ask Afghanistan for that. For man might have delivered them, but the second man was away, they fell straight again. For a new man arose. And that is why we center our trust on God who does not wither and fade like the grass. And when we look to God, it makes all our troubles not fully disappear, but trust does displace fear. Do you see that? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. The trust comes into the picture. The promises of God come into the picture. And fear is sort of pushed out. Our eyes are focused on God. He goes on, all day long they distort my words. This is twist my words. It's like a smear campaign. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They are distorting his words all day long. And the thoughts against them are all day long. They are 
This is Paul and his army. They have committed all their time, all their energy into trying to get rid of David. He says they attack, they lurk. That is, they lurk and ambush. They watch my heels. That is his movements, every step as they have hoped to take my life. Psalm 37 verse 32 says, The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. You can think of uh, Daniel, can't you? When the wicked want rid of Daniel, so they have the law brought in. If anyone prays to their God in the next 30 days, they will be put to death. And then they sit and they watch and they wait for Daniel to pray to his God because they know he will. And when he does it, they grab him. And they take him to the lion's den. The wicked are always waiting for the righteous to fall up. Because they want a reason to put him to death. It was exactly the same with Jesus. The Pharisees, they lurk, they they plot together. How best can we take him out? They think if we can get him for treason, that's an easy way. But they can't even get him for treason. And in the end, it's peer pressure. And so... With all of this distress, David turns again to God and says, on account of their wickedness, that is their their evil, their crimes against David, will they have an escape? In anger, that is the wrath of God, that is his mighty justice. Bring down the peoples, O God. Do you see the air? The wordplay here in the psalm, it's quite interesting. They were trampling on David. They oppressed David. They pushed David right into the ground. And the enemy was on high. They were on high literally. They had the advantage. And they were also on high. And they were on their pedestal. They were proud and boasting of the victory they would get over David. And now David comes along and says, Lord, bring them down. Because God can. Psalm 92 verse 8 says, But you, O Yahweh, are on high forever. God will never be brought down from his high throne. But because he is on high, he can bring down those who think they are on high. And he can lift up the weary and the weak. And the question is, is what do you want from God? Do you want God to bring you low? Do you want God to bring you down because of your crimes, your sin, and your evil? Or would you not rather have that compassionate God lift you up from your despair and your distress? You see, verse 7 is what God will do to the wicked. But verse 8 is what God does to the faithful and his beloved. He says, you have taken account of my wanderings. We can translate this misery or tossings. But the idea is that God is looking on how David is in exile, always fleeing from one place to another. He thinks he finds a cave and he's safe. And next second, he's got to move on. And now he's gone to the Philistines and he's not safe there. And he's got to move on. And he's constantly wandering in the desert. And then he says, put my tears into your bottle. It's probably one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, actually, that really gets that God is close and God is near. Are they not in your book? It's so easy in distress to think God has forsaken us. God has turned his back on us. 
And what David's getting across to us this morning is that God has not forsaken us. In fact, God has taken account of the fact that we are refugees moving from one place to another for refuge. And he puts our tears in his bottle. That is, no tear that you ever cry hits the floor like God missed it. Like God did not take notice of your suffering. No, God collected them tears in a jar in a wineskin, in a water bottle. The tears of his beloved are so, so important to him and precious to him. This is special love for the beloved of God. See, God takes account of all things and knows all things. But in a special way, the people of God, God comes close to and doesn't just know it and doesn't just take account of it but will act on it for his people he takes account of our wanderings he puts our tears in a bottle matthew 10 would say he numbers every hair on our head a job would say you keep count of my steps Psalm 139 would say, you know my uh, sitting down and rising up. You know my every thought from afar. You know every word on my tongue before it's even spoken. God knows everything about us. And he wants you to know everything about him. God is not distant, but God is close. And this is why David can then say, then my enemies will turn back. That is, they will retreat in the day when I call. Because when you call on God, you do not do it doubting that God will act. You do it knowing God will act. Then my enemies will retreat in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Well, Paul sees this and he takes it in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? And the answer again, rhetorical, no one. No one can stand against us if God is for us. And now, notice the repetition, but there's something new here in verse 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The uh, in God whose word I praise and the in Yahweh whose word I praise, it's a sort of form of repetition. We call this synonymous parallelism. It's that these parallel lines, these two lines, yeah, they... They are sort of synonymous. They're they're so like each other, but slightly different. And it's not that he's trying to say exactly the same thing. In fact, it's like this. You have both your eyes open and you see the full picture. (laughs) But if you cover or close one of your eyes, it's like you see the full picture, but you're missing a bit. And if you do the other eye, you're missing this bit. (laughs) And this is David's perspective here. The full picture is looking at it as in God, that is in Elohim. And, but it's also looking at it as in, in Yahweh. And if you take just one, you're missing the full picture. You see, in, when he says, in God, in Elohim, that name, that title, it conveys everything that we mean when we think God, when we think divine, when we think deity. It means the almighty creator who no one can ever touch or, or even do battle with him. 
It is the one that God is transcendent. That is, he is above all things and beyond all things and greater than all things. But if we were to think of that, we might think that God is so off, so far off and so far away that we don't have him close to us. And now we get the second perspective of David in Yahweh. Literally means, uh, I am who I am. But, but it's not the literal that the name's so important in Yahweh. It's, it's the meaning that's conveyed with it. Since Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt, from slavery, the name Yahweh has always been that personal name with God. The name Yahweh, it's, it's always been that name of deliverance. It's been the name that God's people can call upon, knowing that we are in relationship. It's the beauty of God when God says to Moses, this is my name, Yahweh. It's that God doesn't just want this sort of impersonal relationship, but this personal relationship. As he can say, Stuart. <laughs> Stuart can say Yahweh. And as he can say, Andy. Andy can say Yahweh. It's so personal. And this is where you can see the change. In anger, bring them down. That's the mightiness of Elohim. But in the name Yahweh, it conveys that God is so close, so compassionate, that he's right there collecting your tears as you cry. And that is the full picture here. This is what will move us from our fear to trust, not just seeing the almighty God, but seeing the almighty God who is always and ever close to us. And this is so important for us to understand when we come to Jesus, our savior. What does Matthew 1 say? You will call him Jesus, for he will deliver his people from sins. The name Jesus, it conveys the same message of deliverance and hope you can think of the three uh, divine I am sayings in John's gospel. I am Jesus proclaiming, I am, I am Yahweh, that deliverer. And now you see me in the flesh. You can also think of when uh, uh, Jesus says twice in Matthew and once in Luke's gospel, Lord, Lord. Now we don't really pick up on it in our English. But in the first ever Greek translation from Hebrew to Greek, is what Jesus was using here. They translated Adonai Yahweh. In Hebrew, that means Lord Yahweh. And when we get that in the New Testament, that is what Lord, Lord means. It means Lord Yahweh. And it's so interesting that Jesus would say, there are some who will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, Adonai Yahweh. And he will say to them, I never knew you. <laughs> Depart from me. See, the name of Yahweh it's so personal that some outsiders would even think, if I just have that secret name, it'll get me into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus says, no, there'll be some who think that, as if they can just use my personal covenant name, Yahweh, and it will get them into heaven, but it will not, because it's the relationship that is essential. You think as, of as well when, when Paul makes the, the mighty statement, in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name. What name? We'll get to it. That is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the Greek translation it takes this from Isaiah where the understanding is the name that is called upon is is Yahweh that beautiful covenant personal name and when it's translated across it's translated to the Greek word curiae or curios which means Lord and so here we have Paul directly saying here is your savior Jesus who is Yahweh and because of the psalm linking the two Elohim and Yahweh we see people say today I'm not quite sure if the doctrine of the Trinity is true or that Jesus was really God there are too many statements to say that Jesus is not God including this very one that Jesus holds that name that is above all names that is Yahweh that every tongue would confess that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh, he is my God. That's what the name conveys. Whenever it's spoken of in the Old Testament, when you say Yahweh, it's like, you are my God and I am your people. Let's move to the uh, final bit. He then goes on to say, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. David has not been uh, delivered at this point. But you'll see at the start of verse 13, he's so sure of that deliverance that it's almost past tense. For you have delivered me. And because of this... David has spoken vows to God when he says, your vows are binding upon me. These are the vows that in David's distress he made to God and now God expects them to be paid. We are silly when in our distress we say to God, and I've done this so many times, you know, God, would you help me? Would you deliver me? And then the second he does it, we forget. Never ever make a vow to God and then not follow through on it. Always, always make a vow to God of thanksgiving that when you deliver me, I will praise you with my lips and then make sure you do it. Because it is the thanksgiving that God deserves and should not be held back from him. In our distress, we needed him and he was faithful and he delivered us. Now we must be faithful to the vows we made to give him thanksgiving. And for David, this would look like a, a real sacrifice, but it would also look like a sacrifice of words, of thanksgiving. This psalm in itself is David fulfilling a vow to bring thanksgiving to God for his deliverance. And you'll see that here now we have the, the beauty of what God will do, but so certainly has done. Earlier on, David said, they watch my heels as they have hoped to take my life. And now David says, for you have delivered my soul, my life from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling. God will undo what the enemy seeks to do. Because God is so much more mighty. They wanted to take his life and instead God delivered his life. They were watching his heels in order to just sort of trip him up. <laughs> And instead, God will keep his feet firm and planted. 
He has delivered us from death to life and he will see to it that we don't fall from his grace. We are secure. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he finishes with, so that I may walk before God. That is, in a right manner, in a pleasing manner. Ephesians 2 would get at this. That God has not just saved us or delivered us for the sake of saving us. But he has saved us and delivered us that we might do good works and do good deeds. And walk before God in a manner pleasing and holy to him. He says, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. How do we walk? In the light of the living. It can also be translated in the light of the life. Well, in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus makes this statement, doesn't he? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Simply put, the light of life is the opposite of the darkness of death. And that is what God has delivered you from. From the darkness of death into the light of life. In Colossians, it's talked about that God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into God's kingdom. For David, this was his plea. Be gracious so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. It was that plea, God, death is on the doorstep, but you can deliver me. And I know you will. David wanted to hang on to this life just that bit longer till he'd got that kingdom. Surely David also looked beyond that, as we find in other Psalms, to the resurrection. And to us today, we do not just look to God, deliver me, keep me alive in this life longer. But we long for that day when God will resurrect us This last verse in, in, in other Psalms, in, uh, in Psalm 27, verse 13, and 116, verse uh, 8 to 9. In fact, let me, let me quickly read the Psalm 116 to you. And you'll see it summarizes this. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. And that is our hope. And we get a beautiful passage in Revelations. And let me, let me close with this passage from Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That is the closeness of Yahweh. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. David was in despair and distress, but he knew God will keep me alive. He will prolong my life to see the promises of God come true. And we have the promise of God. David had the other promise that he would see the land. We have the 
greater promise, which the book of Hebrews would tell us even David longed for but in Hebrews 11, but we have the greater promise of this new city where we dwell with God. And if you want to read anything at all in this next week, continue to read Revelation 21. See the beauty of that city that God will make new and, and will prepare for us. So sure that he has prepared it for us. That is the beauty that Yahweh, our God, the creator God, comes close, draws near in our distress, collects our tears. What does Revelation say? He wipes away our tears. For now, he collects them in his jaw. But in a future day, he will wipe them away completely. Gone of pain, gone of anguish. It's a very beautiful psalm as we see how David starts off, when I am afraid. And by the end, is so sure of his deliverance. Why? Because his God, our God, is Elohim, that mighty creator. Our God, his God, is Yahweh, that close, compassionate deliverer. So take that with us as we go away today. We can cry upon God, do not destroy, and he will deliver us. Let me quickly close in prayer, and then Daniel will be up with the band. Father, we pray to you. You are our mighty deliverer. In Jesus, there is the purification for sins. There is the deliverance from sin. You have brought us from that kingdom of darkness and delivered us into your kingdom of light, and we are ever grateful. Father, I pray this morning, if there is anyone here who still lives in that kingdom of darkness, Father, deliver them. Let them see the glory of the light of Jesus. For those of us who know his glory and know his compassion, know we can turn to him and we can trust him. And for that, we are so thankful. Oh, Yahweh, we call to you. Be our God and we'll be your people. And we will be in relationship forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Daniel. So we have a... <clears throat> closing song that's a little bit different. So Nathaniel has written um, Psalm 56's lyrics into Here is Love Vast as an Ocean. Okay, so we all know the tune. The reason for this is essentially Nathaniel kind of, and I, I tend to agree with him, we don't sing the Psalms very often. We tend to just speak them, we talk about them. Um, this is an opportunity to sing the Psalm that he's just been preaching on. So the tune is Here is Love Vast as the Ocean which you'll all know, and the words are going to be up there. There's lots of words, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll try this. Um, it will work, it's fine. I've sung it enough times now to know that it will work. Just trust us. Oh, crumbs. That's a little, there's a murmur there. I don't trust you, really. You don't trust me, do you? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? But he's done a good job with this, so let's try that. So what we'll do is we'll sing the first verse just to give you a bit of an idea. You can stand up and join in, and then we'll see, I'll see what the general sort of feel is from there. And then we'll probably sing the first verse again just to give you a bit of confidence. How's that sound? There's a few twisted faces now. It's like, oh, what are we going to do? Is this going to work? Yes, it's going to work. Come on. <laughs> you can all sing. I've heard you this morning. I've been listening to you for years now. I know you can sing. You can definitely do this. Let's try this. So let's stand up and sing.